0: We're starting a new series today, and uh, starting a series five weeks long on the Psalms. Think about that. Five weeks in the Psalms. Obviously, we will not cover 150 Psalms, so I'm, I'm going to use more of a broad stroke approach on things. Today will be an introductory session. It was interesting when we got in the car this morning, when Kathy and I got in the car, and the radio comes on, and... Um, Felix Mendelssohn's Psalm 42 is being sung. And Felix Mendelssohn, classical composer, had a grandfather who was a a Jewish philosopher. He was a Jew. Uh, But at the age of seven, he came to reformed faith in Christ. And so he wrote a number of things from a Christian perspective. You could say more about this than I could. Living in the 1800s. you may not be familiar with that if you're not into classical music. Um, <clears throat> I married into classical music, and that's why I'm there, otherwise I was in into classic things such as sixties. okay well, uh anyway um, the uh, Mendelssohn uh, came to faith at about age seven and and probably what you best know him for is Christmas when you sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing because it's to a tune by Felix Mendelssohn. So that's probably your connection with him or my connection with him before uh, I married Kathy uh, who keeps me straight in so many ways. So anyway, uh, let's have a word of prayer and we will get into this and uh, I pray you can endure what we go through. Father, thank you for these moments together as we open this marvelous word of God to see the beauty of the preservation of the scriptures and what they record for us and how they reveal to us uh, our great God and his wonderful, uh, glorious plan of redemption for us and how Uh, God's people through the centuries have leaned upon him and upon his word. And one of the great places where that has happened is in the book of Psalms. So bless us as we, this morning, seek to taste and see that the Lord is good as we look through these words. And we do this all to your glory and praise. Amen. Let's jump into it here. It was James Hamilton who captures the wonder of the Psalms with these words. Does any literature in the world compare with the book of Psalms? The Greeks have Homer, the Romans, Virgil, the Italians, Dante, the British, Shakespeare, but nothing sings like the Psalms. As Ronald B. Allen has written, only a Philistine could fail to love the Psalms. And I hope that you love the Psalms. I hope you're not a Philistine. By the way, Philistines are mentioned in the Psalms, but they are condemned. So just be aware of that. And then also Thomas Schreiner. Uh, By the way, I've used a number of resources in this, one of which I'll introduce two uh, resources to you today. Uh, one of which uh, the pastor saw immediately walked up he says, "Ah, oh, Shriner, the king in his beauty this is a, this is a wonderful book. It's on biblical theology. It's a theology book, but written from the standpoint of just going through from Genesis through Revelation, every book of the Bible to reveal the king in his beauty. Uh, if you're interested in reading some good stuff, this is good. The other uh, couple of books I will recommend this morning, I'll talk about others later is this series from Focus Publishers over in Europe. Uh, it's Teaching Psalms by Christopher Ash, who uh, was the director of the Proclamation Trust Training Pastors uh, in London. And uh, these two volumes are wonderful volumes, two volumes. The first one is From Text to Message, and uh, the, the, uh, it tells you how to study the psalms and how to go through the psalms, and I'll be relying on this for one major section here today. And then this other takes you, Volume 2, takes you through the 150 psalms, getting the gist of each individual psalm and especially showing uh, the the uh, coming of Christ and the all the references to Messiah and, and showing that in its beauty. And I think that you would enjoy those. This is obviously... Uh, a bit less expensive way to go. Uh, this one is also available in digital, and so it's cheaper if you get things digitally these days. And, of course, a lot of us use digital quite a bit. So uh, here's the, the second quote I bring to you, the and this is from Thomas Schreiner and the King and His Beauty. The Psalms capture... The sorrows and joys that punctuate the experience of both individuals and the people of God, they are richly experiential, demonstrating the relationship with a sovereign God is profoundly personal, expressing intense sorrow and overflowing joy. They testify that ultimately... Though only partially and provisionally in this present age, one's relationship with the Lord is marked by fervent joy. Now, what I want you to pick up from this quote is simply this because sometimes I will pick up the book of Psalms, I will read it, sometimes I will prepare a message, and I'm thinking so personally in this. But recognize, as he says, and I've underlined here for you, that both the individuals and the people of God benefit from this. That is, As an individual, I can sit down and read the Psalms and I can see the message for me as an individual. I can identify with the emotions, the passions, the troubles, the trials, but also I can see where I can go and how I can find help in my time of need in the Psalms. They're very rich that way. But it's also for the people of God. There's a full message here. There's actually a a, a running theme through the Psalms that we don't often pick up. And some people, uh, even, even scholars sometimes, miss this, but we will go through that as well. But what I want for us today is to understand that the book of Psalms is a school of prayer, a fountain of truth, and a revelation of God himself. We see God so clearly, so eloquently provided for us portraits that are so beautiful of God in the book of Psalms. John Calvin has written this that I've been accustomed to call this book an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented in a mirror. In other words, we we will see ourselves in the Psalms as we read. And so I would encourage you. To, to do this as this last line that I've written here and to borrow a phrase from the Psalms, it is here that the Psalms that we taste and see that the Lord is good, that his mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. Now, again, this is for for five weeks, if you can endure that with me. Uh, and I hope that you can come back. And I'm looking forward to seeing what I'm going to say in the following weeks, too, because that's not all laid out for me yet. I'm working through that. I struggle with how do I teach the Psalms in five weeks. But nevertheless, we're going to attempt to do that. And I would encourage you in a project. I don't want to interrupt whatever devotionally you are doing. But if you're looking for something during this new year to do, and I will just challenge you to do this for one month, is I would challenge you in the next five weeks to read through the book of Psalms. And, but I don't want you to read them just 1 through 150. The easiest way to do this is by reading five Psalms a day. And 30 days make a month. So in one month, you can read through the entire book. And you would therefore read Psalm 1, 31, 61, 91, and 121 on the first day of the month or the first day that you start. The next day, guess what you do? 2, 32, 62, 92, 122. And by the time we come to the end of this class, you will have read through all the Psalms, and you would have gotten more out of the class than the lectures. You would have gotten more of a feel of the Psalms. So I, I encourage you to do that. It, 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 I'm not going to grade you on it. I'm not going to give you a quiz on it, but I would encourage you to do that. I have done that many times and have greatly benefited from it. Now, moving on. Uh, In the psalms, we're going to see the character of God shine forth here in these psalms. Theologically, notice what we read here, that the psalmist, this is from James Hamilton, in his commentary on the psalms, uh, the evangelical theological biblical commentary, uh, the psalmist understood themselves to be celebrating the God revealed in the Old Testament. For the psalmist, God's character which he stated plainly on his own behalf in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, determines everything. Out of God's character, his goodness, steadfast love, and righteousness flows the very good world he made. God's character, I love this, God's character means evil will not prevail in the world. God will defeat sin and death, and the serpent and his seed and he will make the world his own holy dwelling place, a clean place of life where he will reign over those who fear and love him. Great statement there. And, and we know we have a great God and that he will bring us and this world into redemption. This morning, interestingly, too, as I'm starting this series, our pastor is going to be preaching from the Psalms. He will be preaching Psalm 12 about the crazy world we live in. Is there hope? And so we will see that, too. But this is what he's getting at here. Now, from a historical perspective, that's the theology here. It's it's going to be revealing God to us from a historical perspective in the Psalms. Well, I don't want to get there yet. Let me let me just say a few words about that. The songs of the Psalter reflect the heart and history of God's people. In these poetic lines, they reflect their own experiences upon the character and faithfulness of God who saw them through all the changing experiences of their lives, just like He will do that for you as His people. Through the Psalms, we sense the trials and the troubles, the heartaches, the battles that these people faced and felt in their emotions inside. Equally, we also see the presence and power and providence of their God as He guided them by His grace through it all, leading to the wonder and praise For their great God who delivered them from all their troubles. So it is a wonderful book of praises in that sense because God, we see God at work in the lives of real people just like you can see God at work in your life. So this big picture of God's promise and plan for His people allowed them to interpret the here and now through the lens of God's care. So we could say that the writers of the Psalms truly have a biblical worldview. They have a godly worldview. They realize that the world has fallen. They realize it's a world of sin. They realize we go through struggles and trials and heartaches and failures within. And yet God is the one who rules all. Now, you have some sheets there in front of you. If you did not pick up one, they are there in the back somewhere. So let's pick up some facts and I've put these down for you because it would have been hard for you to write them all down as much as I'm about to throw out to you. But I want you to have a good sense of feel of the book of Psalms. Mike over here has some of those uh, sheets for you. Thank you, Mike. So the title. Does anybody know the title for the book of Psalms? It's the Psalms. Okay, so that, that's... <laughs> That's the title that we have in our English Bible. That's not the Hebrew title. The Hebrew title is Tehillim, which you see here. And Tehelim means praises or songs of praises. And here was a, a comment by C.S. Lewis that I thought would be helpful for us. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Think about it. Everything you've, you've ever enjoyed in your life, you love to talk about and you love to praise it. My wife and I celebrated our 50th anniversary this past year. We went on a trip. She wanted to go to the Greek Isles. We did it. Oh, what a trip. And it was wonderful. And we've talked about it everywhere. And I'll shut up about it now because I'd like to talk to you about it, but I won't talk to you about it now. But here it says all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Look at that phrase, inner health made audible. When we're praising God, that tells me, when you can go over here and sing praise to God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it tells me about your inner spiritual health. That's what Lewis was saying here. And so he goes on. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. You know, if if you're enjoying something, you want to talk about it. You want to praise it. And this is what we do with our God. Now, by the way, have you ever flipped through your Bible or been reading your Bible and, and you're reading in the Psalms and all of a sudden you're reading somewhere in the middle of the Psalms and you come up and it says there's a page or something at the top of it. It says book four. Book four. And then you start fl- flipping through and you say, oh, there's other books in the Psalms. In fact, there are five divisions or books within the Psalms uh, identified in our Bibles, and they come from the times, those divisions come from the times of David and the temple because the the priest in the temple um, obviously had a lot of control over these Psalms and even to the days of Ezra. As one scholar puts it, the text of the Old Testament in arrangement, content, and stability was fixed by the time of Ben Ezra, uh, Ben Sira. I should say that's uh, somewhere in the second, third century, or more probably at the end of the fifth century BC by Ezra and Nehemiah. So uh, we'll come back to this shortly about these five divisions. But there are five books when you look at your. Your Bibles or at a book like I have a a copy of just the Psalms here in front of me. And so when I open it up, it says the Psalms and then then it will say over here, book one. And then it goes on from there. Many times it's just at the top of the page of wherever it begins. We will talk about this in a moment. What about the time frame in which it was written? This is amazing to think about. So it stretches back to Moses. Moses is a contributor to the Psalms, Psalm 90. That's the 15th century B.C. from where our first psalm comes. Then David, he's living in the 10th century B.C. And there are more than 73 psalms that are attributed to David. The exilic period then would be down to the 6th century BC, the 500s or so, Psalm 137 is one example. But when you think about it, this is nearly 2,000 years of collected information. God inspired and included in God's Word to encourage our hearts from the hearts of other Christians, other people who walked with God, who, who similarly go through struggles and trials. We'll see more of that in a minute. David and the Psalms, what about David? Because he wrote most of those Psalms. And here's something for us to see, and this is in your notes as well. Every Psalm with a superscription. And you know what a superscription is? That's when you see Psalm 42, let's say, and then there's some information there. And then it begins verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, okay? In the Hebrew text, the verse actually begins with a superscription. And so that's why sometimes when you're reading a commentary, uh you'll see uh 421 or something like that and it'll say mt or uh the uh and then it'll say also in the in our english text it's verse 2 or something like that so there's there's a the that's one of the things about those um so um every psalm with a subscription in book 1 That's 37 of 41 psalms in book 1, names David in the superscription. Book 2 names David in 18 of the 31 psalms. So those two are largely David. We'll see that more later. And there is only one psalm in book 3, which is Psalm 86. And then two psalms in book 4, Psalm 101 and 103. By the way, some of these, David, they are some of my favorite psalms. David was the sweet psalmist of Israel. So in book 5, 15 of the forty-four psalms are attributed to David. Now I'm, I've talked about superscriptions. Let's talk a little bit more about that. One hundred and sixteen of the one hundred and fifty psalms carry a superscription. They're at the top, just under the uh, the title. Uh, these. Thirteen of these 116 inscriptions contain historical references. They set the stage for us. We learn a little bit more of where and why the psalm was written or to whom the psalm was written. For the other psalms, many psalms there obviously, that do not have a superscription, we can read the text and then go back. To first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, and often figure out, oh, this is probably during this time. We'll do some of that maybe later in the following weeks. So, um, then, main characters in the Psalms. Now, I'm here excluding uh, the the authors, the writers, such as the uh, the the sons of Korah, the sons of Asaph. Uh, Haman, uh, Moses, David uh, and there's one other one that doesn't come to my mind there, it begins with an E, it's not coming to my mind quickly nothing comes to my mind quickly anymore by the way at my age but so, the main characters. what I'm talking about here is as you're reading through the Psalms who are the people that keep popping up, who are the characters and they're they're more, they're specific and generic when you think about it, first is the Lord Yahweh as the covenant-keeping God. He is the prominent one in all the Psalms. Then, Messiah, God's anointed king. He appears first in chapter 2, or in Psalm 2, I should say. Uh, But it's also about David. There's a, a dual purpose there. He's speaking of David, and David there is writing, and you say, there's not a superscription that says that. But no, Jesus said, David wrote it, in Mark chapter 12, and that's good enough for me. Okay? So uh, so he's speaking about Messiah, the king, the anointed one, the anointed king, who is, that is, whoever is the present king, as well as who is yet to come, the one from David's seed who would take the throne of David. Okay? Are you with me? So God's people are also a third character. Uh, the Hebrew is Hasadim or the godly ones, the righteous ones, the faithful. That's how God's people are described in the book of Psalms, and so you're always looking for that. And then two other groups, one, the enemies of God's people, and then the wicked, and I've separated those because scholars have separated those who are smarter than I am, but, but there's a sense in which he talks about enemies, but there's also the wicked. These are people totally sold out in their character, and we will meet with the wicked in Psalm 1 and 2. Psalms in the New Testament, are the Psalms important? Is the Old Testament important? Well, this answers that question. Of the 150 canonical Psalms, canonical means part of Scripture, inspired of God, canonical Psalms, 129 are quoted or alluded to in some form in the New Testament. Just before this class, Dennis Bullock and I were talking, and he's, he's doing a psalm today, but then he's going to go into the book of Hebrews at some point here, which is going to be a wonderful study. But I think Hebrews has more quotes from the Psalms than any other book. The book of Hebrews is amazing. So it's kind of good that we're doing this for you to get a, kind of some footings here. And Psalms, of course, are songs or poetry. And here's an interesting thing. You know, some of you, I don't know how many of you love poetry. I think sometimes you have to be a very spe- special person to like poetry. Uh, you know, short lines and things like that. I mean, I I in, enjoy poetry too. But but uh, I, I, I'm not going to sit down unless it's Robert Frost or something like that, you know, where I can really relate to visually and so on. Uh, I don't just sit down and get my old English literature and American literature book from university and go back through some of the poems just to read them for enjoyment. But I do read the Psalms. And the Psalms are poetry. And that's what I hope to help you with today. But as poetry, uh, th- these, these Psalms are amazing. And, and uh, approximately one-third of the Bible consists of poetry. And the way you can figure that out is if you have a modern Bible, English Standard Version or, or some other modern Bible, you can just f- start flipping through your Bible and wherever you see there's a lot of space between the words and it's kind of set off differently, it's poetry. Isaiah is filled with poetry. Haggai has poetry. You, can, you have poetry all through the Scriptures. So one-third of the Bible is poetry, so you ought to know a little bit about poetry too. The master narrative of the psalm. And by this, I mean the storyline. You know, there's, there's a storyline as you go through the Gospels and everything else. There, there's actually a little bit more difficult to identify, maybe, but there's a storyline in the book of Psalms. We are running in the book of Psalms with the theme of Yahweh is King, or the Lord reigns. You will see that. Yahweh, by the way, is that Hebrew covenant name of God, which is translated in our versions with all capitals, Lord. Uh, But you will see in the Psalms, it will speak of creation. There are creation Psalms. And we will see the effects of the fall, the transgression, judgment, promise, and hope. We will see, like death and hope, the promise of Abraham comes up in the Psalms. Um, The Exodus and the new Exodus from exile comes up here. So we, we, historically it goes back, but it also goes ex, uh, eschatologically up to the exodus from where they are now and to an ultimate exodus. By the way, Jesus' crucifixion was an exodus for us, and he's, he mentioned that in the book of Matthew. And then onward to our time when we, go into eternity that will be the exodus from this earth the going out from this earth and then the crushing of the serpent's head and seed i was surprised to see that this is one of the themes too that that occur in fact picking up on the themes here here are some themes too that you should look for as you're reading through the importance of god's word and its promises You're going to see David and others appeal to the promises of God, to the promises to Abraham, to the promises to David himself. The suffering of the righteous servant. Whether it's you in this life, here and now maybe suffering, or looking back to the suffering of the righteous servant, Jesus Christ. You're going to see that theme. The sudden destruction of the wicked. We see the wicked prominent in the world, prospering in the world. Dennis is going to preach about that this morning. But the wicked will meet with their end. We pick this up immediately in Psalm 1. They will perish. And that theme will run throughout the Psalms. But also there is the theme of the sure hope of a glorious kingdom. The psalmists are constantly looking toward the hope of Israel, who is the Messiah, and they sing his praise. In fact, the whole summation of the Psalms is found in 146 through 150 of the Psalms, in which is just praise upon praise upon praise upon praise upon praise of God, and that he is the God of all. So these are wonderful things for us to look at. Now, let's, let's go back and pick up some of that organization. Are you with me so far? <laughs> I, I don't see any closed eyes yet. Well, maybe one or two. But the, the, uh, but, but if you're going to close, you're right, close one and keep the other one open, that will be helpful. All right, so um, where was I going with this? So I, we mentioned earlier about the organization of the Psalms. Now, let's look at that. I've given you a chart, chart number one. Now, so what's behind the division of the Psalms into five books? We're going to see some interesting characteristics in the arrangement, and here's an overview of those five. So if you look, look down here, uh, I, what we've done is we have the list of the five books And then the psalms that are within each in consecutive order, followed by why we see this probably has been divided and what are the markers for that. And, uh, in fact, the last three are all markers, the last three uh, rows there. So, book one is made up of Psalm 1 through 41. When you come to the end, and and by the way, go ahead and open your Bible and keep that open if you've got that near you or on your uh, phone or tablet, whatever you might be using. And when you come to the end of 41, if you're just reading through the Psalms, you would not necessarily notice this. But here I think you'll notice it from now on. At the end of Psalm 41, verse 13 reads, blessed be the lord the god of israel from everlasting to everlasting amen and amen okay so if you look at that first column and you see blessed be blessed be from psalm 41:13 it talks about from everlasting to everlasting or from age unto the age and an amen and amen right well, let's we keep reading along in our psalms, and we, we get up to Psalm 72. And I'm turning there in my Bible, and I'm reading through quickly to read all those psalms in between. And I come up to Psalm 72, and what do I find in verses 18 through 20? Something very interesting. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory Amen and amen. Do you see some similarities there? Okay. Then, what does it say beyond that? Verse 20. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Ah, that's a marker also. But David will have more to say. (laughs) But actually, it's in the arrangement and how they arranged and pulled out some of David's other psalms and put it later. Well, let's go on down to Psalm 89 and um, as we come to Psalm 89, we'll come down to verse 52, and it says, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. There it is again. See it in the, in the third column? The Psalm eighty-nine fifty-two to the age or forever. Amen and amen. So I keep reading. I'm thinking, you know, there's something interesting that keeps popping up here. What in the world is going on? And I come to Psalm 106. And I look at the end of that psalm. And it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. It's saying. And, of course, that's, that's that third column, that our fourth column that you're looking at now, Book 4. And Psalm 90 to 106 are there, and there is a bookmark, so to speak. We've ended this section. And then Book 5 ends with Psalm 150, and it's a, just a psalm of total praise. So these became markers uh, that are in there, and they use those then to separate the various books and various themes that we're going to see. Now, is there any meaning to this beyond the fact that we just cleverly find some places where it's blessed be and amen and amen forever and ever and so on? Well, let's look at chart number two. We're going to expand this a little bit. I have kept the first two rows the same, book one through five, and then what those psalms are. But now let's look a little closer at what happens as we progress through the psalms. What's happening here? All right, so uh, I will tell you, as I say at the top there, that uh, Paul House is row four. So if you count the header, there's one, two, three, four. uh, Or or do I have to count the header? One, two, three, four is the God who instructs, elects, and delivers. Do you see that? Paul House is a a magnificent scholar and biblical theologian. He uh, is a beast in divinity, and he has written a book which is a magnum opus on biblical theology um, that is called Old Testament Theology. It's a book about this thick. It's a wonderful book. I always read whatever he has to say about any book of the Bible because he spent a lifetime studying the biblical theology, the themes of Scripture. So he says this, and let's look across the page now, across that row, uh, row. Uh, That row four, the God who instructs, elects, and delivers. That's book one. Interestingly, the God who establishes and delivers is book two. In other words, God is giving, and through David, is giving instruction, and he delivers David. David's going through trials with Saul and other things. You come to book two, and you see that God is establishing him as king, and delivers him from troubles. And so we see the development. And, and it's not like it's clean and neat. Like everything is falling right in line chronologically. But the themes are there. Third, oh, book three. The God who rebukes and rejects. What happens is after David leaves the throne. There are other kings that follow. And they are not necessarily good kings. And so Israel begins to lose hope. Israel begins to wonder what's happening. And God rebukes them for their sin. And he rebukes those kings for their sin. But then in book four, they're looking for hope. So guess who they turn to to start book four? Moses, where he was with people in misery looking for a leader And Moses has the first word to set the tone. Uh, Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. You know, but from generation to generation, you are God. Opening line. So Moses is going to tell us here and everything else in this, this section that there is a God who remembers. He remembers the promises to Abraham and he will sustain you through those difficult times. And then when we come to book five, it is here that the greatest hope shines forth. That the God who restores and renews will come and deliver you in a second exodus. And you will come out of exile and you will go to the Mount of God and you will praise him. And looking eschatologically to the end of time. Okay. So are you with me on that? It's not neat and clean. But it is the general drift as you move through the Psalms. Now, on the last one, this is from Thomas Schreiner, uh, that last uh, row that's on this page. And again, uh, there's the focus. He, he agrees. It's focused on David's life in the first two books. But then, in book three, he relays discouragement because David's kings no longer reign. And, and even though they are from his seed... They are not faithful as David was. And then book four begins with a reflection from Moses, as we mentioned, reminds us that Yahweh will fulfill his promises, as he always does, and there is hope for us in our day because of that. And then finally, we celebrate the salvation that will come with the new David, that is, the son of David, who sits on the throne with the Psalms of Ascent promising an end to the exile, and fulfilling the promises of Abraham. So that helps to give you a general overview of those psalms. Any questions about any of that? Uh, I know I'm, I'm passing through a lot of stuff quickly here. Now, they're in, they're in different, they're, you'll find them in different books, I believe, as I look. Uh, the major one like that is in the last one, and several of them are in the last one. But there's some earlier, too. Uh, so I don't know their significance. It's just another style of writing. We're going to talk about that. He's saying there's an, there's acrostic. Psalm 119, have you ever read through Psalm 19? All oh, what, 176 verses or whatever it is, and, and you're reading through that. Uh, by the way, that's if you're reading five psalms a day, that's the difficult day, just so you know. But fortunately, like Psalm 118 is only two verses, so... It means you're reading about 90 verses per. Okay, so anyway, uh, Psalm 119, you will find uh, every eight verses. It, there's a there's a division and there's a little letter over the top. So if you ever need to study your Hebrew, that's where you go, Psalm 119, because you get all not almost all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet there, and therefore every verse. You don't do the, you know in English you can't do this, but every verse in that section begins with like aleph in the first section and then beth and then gimel and then Do- and it goes right through the hebrew alphabet for you and it, it it's like a kids abc book you know a is for apple and and here it's going through and so so i'm i it's another way to learn and to remember they used it as a mnemonic device to to memorize things and you say Memorize Psalm 119. Yes, most of the the Jewish people have memorized all the Psalms. And uh, it kind of puts us to shame when we sometimes complain, I've got to memorize another verse. I mean, we had to do that when I was in Sunday school growing up. And so I memorized verses like rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, Jesus wept. I always found the shortest verses. This was the challenge as a junior higher. Find the shortest verse in the Bible. Mm-hmm. But, but really, we need to hide God's Word in our hearts so we can meditate on it. So, Uh, The summary, look at the second bullet here, because the first bullet simply says what we were talking about earlier. The whole book of Psalms has been purposefully arranged so that the individual Psalms join together to tell the wider story in a way a collage of photographs can be arranged to portray a narrative development. So, uh, you know, storybook, storyline, uh, it it is there uh, in the details, sometimes subtly. Okay, so now we get to the nitty-gritty of this. And uh, because I want to help you to, to see Hebrew poetry. Most of you probably know this. This may be elementary to some of you, and yet it's a good renewal. I appreciated doing this because it helps me to read psalms differently. And this morning when uh, as Dennis preaches, you look at the psalm as he reads it and try to identify what's being said using some of these tools, okay? So Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. Even when you read it in Hebrew, the lines don't rhyme. That's something of our culture that we do. Um, There are sometimes plays on how words sound in Hebrew, uh, and, and this is even true of place names and people's names. There's often assonance, we call it. And then... Although it does not rhyme, it does usually have a meter. That is to say, there is, in the original, some rhythm, which would have uh, made it easier to speak out loud and to remember. The two most common rhythms are 3-3 and 3-2. Okay, so... Probably my wife should talk about the rhythms here, but I'm going to go ahead and, and at least try to show you and help you see this. An example of a 3-3 three, three rhythm is Psalm 26-2. The stress in the two lines would sound something like this. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. ba and so Hebrew will use this rhythmic way of expressing it, and we can capture some of that in English, but in the Hebrew, it's very clear for them. In laments, they often use 3-2 meter, where the falling cadence from 3 to 2 suggests either sadness or sometimes a quiet confidence, a resting in something when you're in turmoil, Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and salvation, whom shall I fear? There's, there's a, the tension is released. The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? So, so the rhythm changes here to give you relief and release from the tensions of what's going on around you And each of those psalms would rep- represent that too. All right, so Keys in Reading Poetry, it's like hearing music. the melody of music. I like this from Alan Harmon's book, Psalms, a mentor commentary. This is an excellent commentary produced by Christian Focus Publications. He says, music is not given for pure entertainment, but is a thing of beauty that directs attention to God's works of creation, creativity, and providence, which is order. When music and religious poetry are brought together in harmony, there's a special appeal to the human mind and emotions. In itself, music is not identical to language, but it has some of the same abilities as poetical language to appeal to the imagination and to touch the human emotions. You know, that's, that's what the songs or psalms do with poetry it feeds our imagination, it touches our emotions. It's just like a song. I'm sure many of you have a song that, that touches your emotions, or you, you really oh I like that song. It might be the melody, it might be the lines, it might be the words, but it touches you. So I want you to see and feel and taste and explore the depth of the psalm's expressions. And and we're gonna do this by understanding really what is the basic idea of Hebrew poetry and how you can recognize this. The most obvious feature of Hebrew poetry, even in translation, is that it comes in relatively short lines rather than continuous text. It's not a narrative. It's not telling a story that way. But as you see the Psalms and any poetry, they're short lines. That's what make them poetry and what sense, right? But but they are very graphic. They're They're Every word is weighed. Hebrew poetry employs uh, both mood and meaning is parallelism. Parallelism, So Hebrew writes in parallels, and there's different ways in parallels. And so this is the relationship between the lines. They're working together either, either in harmony or dissonance. So we'll see that here in a moment. Uh, Christopher Ashe uses a pop song to illustrate this parallelism. This is from Katie Malua's love song, Nine Million Bicycles in Beijing. Think about that title. It's a love song? Really? By the way, how many of you know Katie Malua? That's what I thought. <laughs> I didn't either. <laughs> so I went on iTunes and I listened to the song. So I, I've heard the song. She's She's a... Like a balladeer, it's, it's, a, it's a love song. It moves like a love song, sounds like a love song. But, but let's look at, at some of these lines. This is to give you an example from our culture, which may help you in moving into the Hebrew culture. I'm using it that way because Christopher Ashe did a good job. I could, could have used something a little more folksy that would relate to me. Like in a show I was recently in, I was listening to a song, and it just moved my heart. Uh, Mama, don't shoot little Buford. Mama, don't pound on his head. Mama, don't shoot little Buford. I think I uh, don't, don't, don't. Mama, don't whoop. Yeah, Mama, don't whoop little Buford. I think you should shoot him instead. So that, that's that's the kind of song that I tend to to, uh, to relate to. But here's here's a good one. Here here's two lines A B from her song. There are nine million bicycles in Beijing. That's a fact. It's a thing we can't deny, like the fact that I will love you till I die. Okay, so this is parallelism. And, and look at the parallel I've, I've described it here in the bullet. Here the parallelism is direct. There is a fact, notice I underline that for you. There is a fact that parallels another fact. The fact is there's 9 million bicycles in Beijing. I don't know if I want to go to Beijing. But it's a thing we can't deny. In fact, uh, like the fact, like the fact, using a metaphor, like the fact, that I will love you till I die. So they're, they're, they're equating each other here. Let's do another one from the song. We are 12 billion light years from the edge, and that's a guess. No one can ever say it's true. But I know that I will always be with you. Heavy love song, huh? Anyway. Uh here the parallelism works as a contrast. There's twelve billion light years from the edge here of the universe, and that's a guess. But here's something that I know. Here's the contrast. But I know that I will always be with you. Hmm. Again, I'm I'm not trying to sell Katie Malua. I'm not trying to give you a good love song, although you may want to get this for your vacation playlist, you know. But third, there are six billion people on the earth. Wait, wait. I'm, first of what what's her obsession with billions and millions? You know, she's, that's oh, in every line. There are six billion people on earth, more or less, and it makes me feel quite small, but you're the one I love the most of all. So here the second line builds on the first line to intensify the truth it declares. So did you notice here we had a parallel that was direct, then we had a contrast, and now we have an intensification. Okay? All right. So let's get out of that mess and let's look at something that will be more helpful as we get into the Scriptures. So in the simplest kind sometimes called synonymous parallelism synonymous saying the same thing the two lines say essentially the same thing in slightly different ways here's a simple example psalm 101 verse 7 first line no one who practices deceit will dwell in my house line b no one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence I even read it in such a way as it sounded like we're saying the same thing. I tried to do it that way. All right, the two lines are almost identical, right? Deceit, falsehood, in my house, in my presence. Just slightly different words. The effect here is to emphasize something by repetition. Hebrew does that, it will repeat things. So, more often, Uh, in this so-called synonymous parallelism, there is a slight development of intensification. For example, here in Psalm 83 two: See how your enemies growl, how your foes raise their heads. Now, if I'm reading Psalm 83, I might just read through that, run through that, sit, let my eyes see the words and just keep on moving. I will not stop and think and meditate about it. But when you think about it, these are two things. There's two emotions. There's there's two situations that are here. The intensification comes in the last part of each line. They have enemies, they have foes, right? But the first, they growl, indicating hostility. You know, the enemy's But in the second line, what do what changes? What do you sense in the second line here? Help me out. And they're not just, no, they raise their heads. There's a sense of activity. Something's about to happen. They feel intimidated in some way. The poet here feels intimidated. So the first, they growl, indicates hostility, but then they rear their heads, the idiom indicating actual rebellion. You with me? Okay, see, most of that is still open. That's good. All right. So here is a three-line example to show intensification. Remember the days of long ago. Now, you know, I, I could have stopped right there. You know, if I'm just talking to somebody, I might stop there and just say, all right, you remember, we do this in my family. Ashley will look at me and say, we'll be sitting there in silence. She'll say, Do you remember that time in Atlanta? She doesn't have to say any more than that. Nothing more than that. And I know exactly what she's talking about. Or do you remember that time when, and and she won't have to give me any indication, says, do you remember that time? But here, what's happening is, there's a development of thought. I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. The words remember, meditate on, and consider are synonymous. And yet, even in those words, isn't there a little bit of texture to them? You remember something, then you think about it, meditate. Then you consider. Oh, yeah. See that? When you're reading a psalm, drink in the words. Feel the texture of the words. All right? So... He remembers a time in the past in a rather general sense, in line A. In line B, he makes it clear that the past time he remembers is more precisely your works. Oh, that's good. That's strong. So, I remember something along the Oh, yeah, it was the works of God. But what were those works? C. Line C. He makes it very personal and immediate. What your hands have done. At one level... Three lines convey the same truth. That another, they build to a, the truth to a crescendo of intensity. Um, I I uh, I think I preached here on the first day of January, right? I don't have a my other Bible out. I pulled out my Psalms. Does, does anybody remember what I preached on? That's what I thought. You know. There's a truth. I mean, hopefully you were fed that day. But there's a truth that we all need to remember as pastors. You're only as good as your last sermon. So that's something I constantly preach to myself. I preached on Psalm 146. And in Psalm 146, uh, the first point probably took the longest, but it was the first two verses and here's what there was. Listen, listen to this in light of what you're seeing here. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Why did he have to say it four times? Because the guy really means it. He feels it. He's talking about his emotions and what he is going through in life. So, there's that sense of intensification. That's that's the key word here. Antithetical parallelism—that is, against the thesis—you've got one one side, and then you're going to have something on the other side. At the opposite end of the spectrum is parallelism. Is this where the lines expect a, uh, express a positive and negative sides of a truth? This is sometimes called antithetic parallelism. For example, here in Psalm one six makes it very simple. And we're going to go to Psalm 1 and 2 next week. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. These things are poles apart. This is antithetical. There is a way in which the Lord will watch over. It's the way of the righteous. But there's another way. It's a way that leads to a dead end, destruction. So, B is the flip side of A. The effect is to press home the truth to us, both positively by encouragement, negatively by warning. So that first psalm is a wonderful word of comfort, but a very strong word of warning to us. Also, sometimes parallelism doesn't fit neatly into either uh, synonymous or antithetic uh, categories. B may significantly develop the thought, as in Psalm eighty-three, thirteen: "For great is your love toward me." You know, love. I mean, love can be about a lot of things, right? Kathy, how do I love you? Let me count the ways. Oh, that's another poem. But the thing is, you know, you've got this love. What, what is this love? Well, he just says, God loves me. But wait, B tells us the, the bottom line. What happened? You have delivered me from depths, from the realm of the dead. So line A makes a general affirmation about the Lord's covenant love. God loves me. Yeah, okay, good. I, I know, God loves me. In fact, everybody sitting here, I hope, can say, well, I, I know God loves me. How? How do you know that? Where did you sense the love of God yesterday? Where did you sense the love of God this past week? The psalmist here is showing how he has been delivered from some terrible, difficult tragedy that could have been in his life. Or, as it were, it may ascend from A, bringing A to its completion, as in, for the Lord is a great God. Now, that's, a, that's a perfectly fine line in itself, right? But it can build, and he does. In verse 3, the great king above all gods. So here we're moving in ascendancy. And then one more, and we will probably stop right here since I've got only, by my watch, one minute left. And all God's people said. Okay, all right. So staircase parallelism, especially in the Psalms of Scent, we meet with what is called staircase parallelism, in which phrases gradually ascend a staircase of meaning. And here's the example from Psalm 121. By the way, Psalm 121 is one of those psalms that sometimes I, I don't really think through the full meaning or I don't appreciate it because I can, I can go back to Colorado where we came from, or we served for many years out there, and I, I can be driving up, And I see the whole front range. And Colorado has 50 peaks above 14,000 feet. And I see the snow-capped hills. And I think, wow, that's magnificent. I'll lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. And I'll say that. I'll think that. However, that's not really taking the verse in context. The context is a pilgrim psalm. People are going to Jerusalem the holy hill of God, where God dwells, to where the temple is. They're going to worship God. Always keep that in mind, too. Let a hill remind you of that, but remember another hill, Jerusalem. Mount Calvary, remember that hill. Remember the hill where the temple of God is and will be. So it says here, I lift up my eyes to the mountain. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, think of a pilgrim who is coming from the lowlands and they're going up to Jerusalem. And if you ever go to Israel, you will see this is just the case. You're rising up to go to Jerusalem. My help comes from the Lord, who's the maker of heaven and earth. God made all of this and God is right there. And he is taking his footsteps and he says, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. You can see him thinking through this as he's making his way to the temple of God to worship God where his help comes from. He needs help and it's there with God. So this is poetry. This is, this is how they express fully their emotions of, of following God and living with him. If we ignore parallel and fail to take our time to savor the words, images, and phrasing, Christopher Ashe reminds us that we would have lost much of the emotional and affectional impact of the psalm. Let the parallel lines impact you, and let them make you think about the relationships between the lines. Hearing poetry is a little like viewing a distant object through binoculars rather than a telescope. Both eyes are engaged in binocular vision. The two views are slightly different and their convergence produces a sense of depth. And that's what I want to do for you is help you have a sense of depth that's in the Psalms. So, for next week, I would like for you to to maybe do that project of reading, but I especially want you to focus on Psalms 1 and 2 and we'll do some more in that first book and probably second book of Psalms. Okay, So I'm going to work some in there. If you have questions, write those down. If you, if there's something that you need explained, please put that on a piece of paper. Hand it to me. I will try to get to those things and help explain it. But I hope today at least you've got the introduction to the Psalms. And now I hope to open a few of them out for you and with you. So I want you to look at the Psalms and I want you to read it in the way we've been talking about today. And then we're going to discuss that, and I'll expect some interaction from you, okay? Father, you'll bless Dennis as he opens the book of Psalms to us today in Psalm 12. May you uh, nourish our souls from his heart and soul as he preaches the word of God to us. We pray this in the name of our Messiah who is coming. Amen.